Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, As you'll hear, Adam Campbell here uh, grew up in Nigeria and now lives and loves the Canadian Rockies. And by the way, this episode is from Without Compromise, my other podcast that I host through my day job at Athletic Brewing. A lot of times we have guests on that show that would just be a really good story here as well. So I say, hey, why not share some of those episodes over here? So if you're interested in hearing some other shows, I talk to NFL players, all sorts of athletes, folks from our community in at Athletic Brewing. We make non-alcoholic craft beer. If you're interested in that, check out that show. It's linked in the show notes. But this interview was really interesting because we're talking about something that we don't often talk about uh, on either show, really, and that is loss, uh, death in uh, the adventure sports and the things we pursue. And Adam has faced personally a tragedy to himself by falling off a mountain and also to uh, loved ones. So as we're going to hear, a pretty tragic incident happened in the mountains. We're just talking to him about what that experience was like, what he learned, and and how he moves forward from that. Because, uh, you know, something can happen, and it can change the way you look at these places. And how do we continue to move forward, falling in love with ourselves, our passions, and, and the places we love, uh, despite the things that can happen and sometimes do happen in these places. So, Uh, I hope you learned something from today's episode, and I appreciate Adam being on. Adam is uh, quite a legendary athlete in Canada. Uh, He's been on the Canadian national uh, triathlon team, has competed uh, in all sorts of things, done all sorts of amazing adventures, athlete for our Territz, athletic brewing, of course, and has done just some overall amazing stuff. So thanks again, Adam, and uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. Adam Campbell, welcome to Without Compromise. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Looking forward to this. Where are you coming from? Where's home for you? At the moment, I'm calling from Squamish, British Columbia, and I've been living here since December um, of this year, or I guess of, uh, of, uh, you know, of last year. And uh, But prior to that, I was in Canmore, Alberta, uh, so in the heart of the Canadian Rockies. And um, yeah, for a number of reasons, I felt like a change and change to the coast mountains has is, is been a good one. Squamish is a pretty special place, especially, especially come summertime here. How different is it than a Canmore? A lot of folks would say, well, you know, one Canadian mountain town to another, <laughs> how, how much different can it be? Well, I mean, when you, when you look right uh, from Canmore, you're looking at the prairies. When you look right from Squamish, you're looking at the ocean. So that's uh, already a pretty big, big difference. Um, and then, you know, from a, a practical standpoint, you've got, uh, really different climates. Uh, so Canmore is at a little bit of altitude. Um, the rock there is, uh, these heavily glaciated, uh, limestone peaks for the most part and much, much colder, harsher winters. Uh, whereas Squamish, um, you're dealing with coastal granite for the most part. There is other types of rock, but so a really different style of rock. And then, um, obviously more coastal climate, a little bit more Pacific Northwest like, and, uh, you know, got like big rainforest. So spectacular beautiful old growth trees and uh just really really lush um you know it's it's darker and rainier uh whereas canmore is a little bit more you know for for american audience a little bit more like uh like like a colorado or a utah you know quite quite sunny uh but cold winters for sure and so i read that you're a you're a sufferer and beautiful you you like to suffer in beautiful places when did that start i mean was it just growing up because in that area i'm sure it's unavoidable but but when was it for you that it was a, a conscious decision 
Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I, I actually grew up in West Africa. I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, which about is about as far away from the mountains as one could imagine. It's, uh, um, I, grew, I grew up on the ocean in West Africa, uh, so in a completely, um, you know, flat part of of the country, uh, with, uh, you know, the water was tropical warm, the weather was tropical, so you're only a few degrees above the equator. But from a really young age, um, I didn't have, we didn't have television growing up and I spent all my time outside. So I think I've just always equated, uh, you know, like play and recreation with, and just sort of happiness with, uh, with being outside. And, um, you know, at first that was like surfing and, you know, or playing in the, you know, in the youngest age, like, you know, making little sandcastles in the ocean and sort of burning your feet on the hot sand, to, uh, you know, them playing in the, in the shore break waves and then starting to you know, surf a little bit in the, in the beach breaks there. And then later on it was sailing. And so I think I've just always enjoyed um, challenging myself uh, in nature. And uh, frankly, it's, you know, like nature always wins, <laughs> um, you know, so it's sort of, you know, developing a deep respect for it and just sort of seeing if you can, um, I don't know, endure what nature has to give and give to you and sort of developing the skills and respect to sort of work with it as well. Gosh, that's really that's really awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I did read that, but I I, I I must have skipped just preparing questions around it. But I do want to know, you know, what what drew you back to Canada, or, or what was really the experience growing up in Nigeria, like a totally different environment, like I said, culture yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um. So my my parents are both Canadian, and they but they moved there when I was nine months old. My dad was uh, worked uh, for a telecom company, and they're putting fiber optic cables throughout West Africa, and later on cell towers. And uh, my dad lived there for um, 43 years. He actually, he, you know, he retired, but he uh, he now lives in southern Spain. So my dad's definitely a sun seeker uh, to the to the extreme. But um, I moved back to Canada when I was 17. There wasn't really much of a of a proper high school, and, I, and my parents really wanted me to experience what it was like to be in Canada. And I actually ended up going to boarding school in eastern eastern Canada. Um, so an hour and a half outside of Toronto in this small town called Port Hope. And it was it was wonderful. Um, I mean, it was kind of out of a movie, is really. Uh, so Lagos, uh, where I grew up, is you know, one of the world's big mega cities. You know, there's almost zero infrastructure, and uh, it's loud and it's chaotic. But we would we would go to to Europe and to the Alps and to to Spain for all, most of our vacations. But going to this really green, lush, outdoor, beautiful campus was was just a really wonderful place. And um, that's sort of where I started discovering, uh, you know, like cross-country skiing and backcountry skiing and mountain biking and, um, and started to discover a little bit more about organized sport because I played a lot of sports growing up and I did a lot of activities, but there was no real organized sport per se. You know, we'd show up and play a soccer match, but there was no training. And so I started training for, uh, for these other outdoor sports when I was about 17. Is there anything you miss about Nigeria that Canada just can't? can't provide um you know it's the, so the one thing that i i had growing up um in so i grew up in, in in more of an expat community but so i had my my group of friends growing up were really really international um like so my best my best friend was Ghanaian, uh, so he's from ghana uh and then another my other best friend was syrian um and you know there's like german and italian so it was this really international upbringing and that was a, that's a really, really unique way for a kid uh, to, be, to be raised. And then the one thing that you also um, get exposed to is just like the, the deep poverty that exists in places like that. But just the, the joy of life that, you know, that people who have very, seemingly very, very little from a Western perspective 
just have this richness of life and this incredibly deep culture and um, just sort of, you know, even though like life is really hard for people, people also really look out for each other in place like that. And not that they don't do that in Canada, but I think that the deep appreciation for really, really simple things, uh, you know, is often lost in us in, in Western cultures. You know, the more we have, the more we want. Um, whereas when you have absolutely nothing, you, you, which a lot of people really don't, um, I think they just develop a really deep appreciation for life and, and simple pleasures. And I think that that's a wonderful worldview to have. Well, well tell us about, you decided to go back to Canada, 17 years old, uh, creating your own life. What started getting you into the mountains in, in the sense of like starting to do some of these ultras? How, how long was that kind of trajectory and what were some of the yeah. milestones there? Because I know you were competitive from triathlons and being on, uh, you know, national sports teams, tons of them what what was kind of the trajectory there yeah so when, when like from a young age like as i said all of our vacations happened in the mountains or in mountain areas so they also just kind of always associated mountains once again with like with play and, and vacation time so you know there's there's just a real joy to, to be in the mountains and you're you know you're skiing in the winter or uh you know in the summer going and hiking in the hills or sort of scrambling on rocks and stuff and so i think i've always just sort of been drawn to mountainous areas and um my, my trajectory there, though, was when I was um, 18, uh, I'd started, you know, as I said, running cross country, and I, I grew up swimming in the ocean, so I've always been quite a strong open water swimmer, even though I wasn't a great, like, pool swimmer necessarily, and I, I entered a triathlon, and it happened to be the Junior Canadian Triathlon Championships, and I qualified for the the national team at, um, at that race, um, so I had, a, I had quite a good race, and I think it's sort of my, my base level of fitness, and, you know, maybe some lucky genetics, and little bit of talent and I uh so I made the national team and so it was, it was pretty cool as an as an 18 year old 19 year old to go and compete at the world championships and put on the maple leaf for the first time even though I you know hadn't grown up in Canada I always saw myself as a, a proud Canadian and that same year uh, a, a young Canadian guy named Simon Whitfield um qualified for the Olympics and ended up winning the first Olympic gold medal in triathlon in the year 2000 and I had um, started college that year, so university in Canada. And Simon happened to be from the hometown, uh, Kingston, Ontario, where I was going to university. And he came out and trained with us after winning this gold medal. And like the rest of Canada, I watched him, you know, sprint down the finishing chute and, and win this this race. And you know, he sort of became an instant Canadian sporting legend. And here I was uh, getting to train with him, and uh, it, was, it was pretty uh, pretty awesome doing a we were doing a cross country running workout. You know, it was like six by three minutes or eight by three minutes or something like that, and not not quite keeping up with him, but like you know, not also getting totally obliterated by him. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that he probably hadn't been training for months at that point. <laughs> he had probably been partying, <laughs> celebrating his gold medal, but I didn't I didn't think too much about it. I was like, oh, I'm hanging with a gold medalist here, and he uh, invited me to, to 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 basically fly across Canada and come and train with. Uh, the Canadian national triathlon program. And I was like, well, it's kind of amazing that this Olympic gold medalist is inviting me to come train with him. And that sounds a lot better than, you know, the, uh, the statistics course I'm taking. And so I dropped out of school and flew across the country uh, to Western Canada, to Victoria, British Columbia, and started training with him. Um, and with sort of a long-term goal of trying to qualify for the 2008 uh, Olympics. And I, I got to compete um, and train alongside some of the best triathletes in the world. Simon had this amazing way of gathering the best triathletes in the world um, around him, and they, they kind of gravitated there as well. So you know, he had uh, the world, you know, like world champions and um, you know national champions from around the world, really, and you know Hawaii Ironman champions training there. 
And so I got this really deep immersion into what it was like training with the best athletes in the world and how to be a professional athlete and how to train really hard. And uh, in about 2006, I realized that I just didn't quite have it, what it took to qualify for the Olympics. And so I, um, I, I kind of retired from triathlon at that point, I hung up my Speedo and singlet and um, I became the national team manager. Uh, my partner at the time was, uh, you know, it, it finished fourth at the world championships the year before. And Simon was, was my best friend and he had a you know pretty good shot at meddling again at the Olympics. And so I uh, decided the only way to, to support them was to become a national team manager. Um, so I did that, but I didn't want to give up on sports. And so I started jumping in uh, trail running races and I got to use some of my fitness and triathlon in the early days of trail running and trail running races. And um, it kind of just grew from there. I started uh, for sort of big international mountain race was the world long distance mountain running championships. And I think I finished uh, ninth at that, at, those, at that event at the Jungfrau Marathon. And then, um, and then I started getting more and more curious about ultras, and um, and, and that evolved uh, over time. Started running hundred mile races in the mountains, and I started discovering that more and more of my runs were turning into scrambles. Um, and so I, I'd always kind of rock climbed a little bit in, in climbing gyms and dabbled in it, but I got more and more interested in that rock climbing, and then that led to me doing more and more backcountry skiing. Um, and ski touring and slowly next thing I knew I was probably spending more time doing like fast mountain travel than actually racing. And, um, yeah, sort of became more of an alpinist or sort of combining mountain running and alpinism and light alpinism. Yeah. So that's sort of a, a really, really quick summary of a more complex story, but uh, it gives a general overview anyway. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Hey, that was I, I was following right along. I'm like, wow, this is so logical. You, you you don't jump all over the place like I would if I told the story. So I appreciate that. Um, well, well, what do you think? I I, I did read that you uh you know as you progress, just like you just explained, your 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 events and your activities became more and more wild based, more and more adventure or based, uh, less uh event based and so what, what do you think was drawing you to that or that less organized experience um, well i'd say a couple things i mean i I'd, I'd competed for a very long time at that point at a very high level and um you know and so you know i, I did sort of experience what it was like to you know to race a lot and i've always had a really adventurous kind of curious spirit and you know, as I was as I was running trail running races and events, it was it was really cool, and I really enjoyed the competition and um, you know the sport uh, when I first got into it in around 2000, um, you know 2007, um, it was really starting to it was starting to see a big shift. You know, trail running was starting to take off, and these are like events like UTMB and um, you know Western States were starting to get more coverage in mainstream media. People like Scott Jurek and Anton Krupicka and Killian Jornet were starting to appear on the on the scene. So, and there were, I think also sort of around the time of like, you know, YouTube was starting to happen. And uh, so we're starting to watch these trail running videos and it was, it was really cool to, to see um, the growth of sport. And I, I think I kind of got caught up in that and, um, and it, it was, it was neat to be part of the competitive side of it. But after a bit, I, I was starting to get, as I said, more and more curious, just spending more time moving in the mountains and, you know, it'd be running across the base of, um, you know, ridge lines, And rather than sort of staying on the green trail, I'd start, you know, scrambling up these ridge lines instead. 
and um, and it was just a sense of adventure and sort of seeing where I could, where my my body and feet and you know, technical skill and courage or stupidity would uh, would take me. Um, I just love looking at maps and seeing people link up ridge lines or. Um, you know, sort of reading trip reports and hearing people who've done, uh, you know, like a six-day backcountry hike and seeing if they could do it in a day and that kind of stuff. I thought it was, it just sort of felt really freeing. Um, and I think having done such a, you know, sport at such a high level uh, and in a really structured competitive environment, I just really enjoyed the freedom of still being able to push myself and challenge myself, you know, but doing it in a way where it's more in response to the terrain and nature and the environment you're moving in. I know that uh, you, you were doing a challenge with some friends when you had your accident, but up until that point, what what was kind of your philosophy around danger, or did you have one, or, or, or just slowly progressing and learning and making good decisions in the moment is you know the best way to go? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that um, I, you know I probably progressed too quickly into into hardcore sort of mountain activities just due to the fitness and then. Um, the people that I, you know, I was lucky to be exposed to, um, one of my sponsors, Arcteryx, uh, is a very well-known, um, uh, you know, like clothing brand in the mountain space. And so a lot of the other athletes are these like world renowned ice climbers and rock climbers. And so I got to go on trips with them and do things with them. And so rather than having a slow natural progression through, um, you know, with, with, with like a, a more traditional mountaineering background, I kind of jumped into the slightly higher end of, of mountain sports quite quickly. And so uh, even though I had the fitness with what I was doing, I think I was kind of lacking the, um, you know, like the really hard skills and the basic understanding. So I think probably the, the reality is, is I was able to get away with a lot and I wasn't fully aware of the, the risks and dangers that I was um, putting myself into, you know, so basically you don't know what you don't know. Um, and now with, you know, a bit more experience and time, I'm much more aware of sort of the early risks um, I was getting away with and, you know, eventually didn't get away with. And uh, I was really lucky to, to, to not die um, uh, from that accident. Well, you know, when, when I interview folks, I, I try not to, you know, ask the same questions that they've been asked a million times. But do, do you mind telling us some of that story? Like what, what happened? I just think it's so powerful. And if you feel like revisiting it, I'd love to hear it. No, for sure. Um, so in August of 2016, um, me and two friends, uh, Nick Elson, who's probably the best mountain runner, mountain athlete that uh, most people have never heard of, at least in North America, um, and another friend, Dakota Jones, who um, is a world-class ultra runner, but he also has a very strong climbing background. Um, we're in this area called Rogers Pass, British Columbia, and it's the birthplace of, um, of mountaineering in Canada. And it's a really, really beautiful um, alpine environment. And wanted to do something called the Horseshoe Traverse. And it's uh, basically a link up of 14 peaks. And it's, it is a mountaineering route. Um, like you're, you know, there's fifth class, um, you know, up to five, four, five, five kind of terrain, but with insane exposure and, uh, you know, there's glacier crossings. And um, we were, we, this, this route gets done on occasion and it typically gets done in about, you know, four days. And we were hoping to do it in a single push um, and ideally sort of under 24 hours because that was sort of the philosophy we like to take to things was sort of moving light and fast. And, you know, by taking more of a trail running mentality into this, into that environment um, and, and, you know, and leaving things like, uh, you know, like racks and, um, you know, heavy, heavy climbing gear behind, uh, you can cover a lot more ground, but you're also taking much bigger risks as well. 
And we'd, we, you know, our day started out really well and we'd covered the first three peaks and Nick and Dakota were slightly ahead of me and we were going up this, uh, this little buttress called the Saltzer Tower. It's not even a, a main prominence. It's just a little, a little rock buttress. And, um, uh, you know, I, w- I wasn't paying attention. I was kind of rushing a little bit and I ended up pulling out a block um, and I wasn't properly secured and ended up falling about 200 feet down the side of this mountain. It wasn't a straight fall. It was a series of ledges and I, uh, you know, found myself tumbling down these ledges and um you know and, and when those sort of things happen time uh, you know stands still but it also sort of speeds up and I, w- I was conscious through the entire thing i was wearing a helmet at the time which which saved my life but um i, I you know you know i was tumbling and all of a sudden i realized i wasn't falling anymore and but i was face down in uh in, in a pile of blood and i remember not liking that and I uh, pushed myself and rolled myself over onto my back and instantly realized that that was, that was a really big mistake. Uh, but I needed to just stand still. And, um, you know, luckily, luckily, Nick and Dakota are, um, you know, some of the fastest mountain runners in the world. And they're also very skilled um, climbers. Um, and they were able to get down to me really quickly and call search and rescue. And we have a world-class search and rescue crew in the Canadian Rockies. And they were able to get to me within three hours of my accident. Um, you know, I was I was bleeding really heavily, but... Fortunately, I, um, you know, just, and, and due to nothing, I did just really, really dumb luck. Like, um, you know, I, I could, I, I knew I could wiggle my toes, but I was in a lot of pain and they evacuated me and uh, ended up in surgery for over nine hours. And I had broken my, my back, T eight to T 11 vertebra. And, uh, I'd fractured the top of my hip bone. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of internal bleeding, uh, lacerations across my entire body from, from the rock and, um, it fractured my ankle as well. But I was alive and I was conscious and um, I wasn't paralyzed. So, um, you know, after the surgery, when I came to, I just, you know, I sort of had to deal with that for the last number of years. But all in all, um, you know, I was able to make a, a quite a good recovery um, f- from the injuries. Um, you know, never be able to compete quite the same the same way or run the same way I could prior to the accident. But uh, when you have to go through something that traumatic, all you do is, um, you know, sort of. Well, it was more, a lot more important to have gratitude for the things I, I could do instead of really dwelling on what um, I wasn't able to do anymore. Uh, because even on a relative scale, you know, the even though I, I can't run the you know the you know the, the you know the four thirty minute miles I once could, I you know I can still run it like a I can still run. Um, you know, and I think that there's um, or you know even if I could just hike, um, you know, I would have been grateful for that. And so I, I try to make that my mind frame. How did your relationship with the mountains change after that? accident so i mean one I, I realized that you know the way that i was moving in the mountains there was a lot of ego involved i was really trying to prove myself i think i think i was, I was kind of self-conscious maybe that i did lack the skill um you know that a lot of other climbers had necessarily and so i was trying to prove myself like a lot of young uh, people in the mountains do and uh i i instantly realized that you know they, they really don't care um about who you are what your cv is you know but they're a place that they're just dangerous. They're just really, really dangerous environments. And, uh, you know, you can move quickly enough that you need to move really cautiously. And so I sort of rewound a little bit what I, what I did. And I, you know, I sat down with a lot of these sort of, um, you know, mountain mentors. And I, I started from the beginning and started to try to really work on like my basic soft skills and learn how to approach the mountains in a, in a safer, slower way, um, uh, you know, and then hopefully progress from there. So I, uh, you know, I, I basically just treat them with a lot more respect than I, than I, than I previously pre- previously did. Like they're a lot of fun. Like they, and they, they are, and they're sorts of like incredible beauty and awe. 
Um, but one of the one of the reasons why they invoke that is because they're very very dangerous harsh environments. Your philosophy before, which was the more chaotic your life got, the bigger your goals uh, would would become, and the goals you would chase would be. And I, and I guess that's where that that maybe uh, you let that go. Uh, I mean, I won't necessarily say that I, I let my, my, my goals go in the mountains, but I think the reasons for doing them shifted, um, you know, rather than doing them to prove myself, um, you know, which I think we've been being honest was, was probably a large part of it. Um, you know, I, I try to remind myself that it's just, it's more about curiosity and, uh, and sort of being less attached to, to, to the outcome. I think it's still cool to, to try like rad things and to like, to be inspired by, by, by hard lines and, um, but to not being to not identifying yourself by the outcome. I think that that was sort of the big, the big mental shift that happened for me anyway. But I, I know a lot of people that have gone through mountain accidents who just never went back and that's totally okay as well. But for me that, you know, I've always, um, you know, they, they continue to be a source of beauty and, uh, and, and strength and empowerment for me. And um, it, there's no sense of like, you know, wanting to go back and, and conquer uh, what I've done, but rather just go and sort of understand and immerse my, myself in them. Did you think to yourself, like, okay, you know, a lot of people have a situation like this, uh, an accident that really changes their life. Did you think, you know, I had that. It's it's behind me. It's done. I Now I have to learn from that, and this is the rest of my life. I don't know if I was so naive as to, as to think that nothing could ever happen again. I think that would be a really, really dangerous uh, mindset to go into the mountains with. I think, you know, you, you don't certainly think you're invincible. Um, but I um, – as I said, like I, you know, I continue to, to give them a, a lot of respect and to try to keep developing skills. You know, taking avalanche courses and rock rescue courses and weather courses and spending time with really, you know, like you know, like mentors and more, you know, people who spend a lot of time in the mountains and sort of asking them questions and just trying to be like deeply curious about the places I, I move in um, to try to minimize, uh, you know, the, the likelihood of something happening. But anytime you're in a risky environment. Um, you know, in high, high consequence environments, you know, that you, you try to stack the odds in your favor, but you can never guarantee uh, that nothing will ever happen. And, you know, and, and me and my friends and, and, and my, uh, my, my partner at the time, Laura, um, talked about those things a lot. Um, you know, when you're out there, you're, you're constantly like, basically doing risk assessments and hazard assessments when you're, when you're moving in, in technical mountain terrain or in natural backcountry. Like to, to give people context, the Canadian Rockies are, are even though they're they're accessible, they're very very wild, very very harsh mountains. Um, you know, they're they're really really remote and quite unforgiving. Um, wonderful places to prepare you for, you know, like the Himalayas. But places like the Himalayas are far less remote than um, than the Canadian Rockies are. Um, you know, there's just thousands and thousands of kilometers and miles of uninhabited terrain, and much of that terrain is sort of still unexplored by people. Well, so, so you get through this accident and, uh, you know, shift in perspective, respecting the mountains more, maybe doing it less for ego. Um, what were some of the goals then? What were you doing? I, I know you went out with friends, like you said, but what were some of the things you were putting yourself through at that point? Um, I mean, I, you know, backcountry skiing has always been a really big part of it, uh, of my, of my life and sort of getting more into ice climbing and, um, you know, and mixed climbing. And just are really learning to appreciate winter in a big way. But one of the big things that happened during that um, uh, during that recovery process is I really really understood the power of uh, community and love um, in healing. Uh, you know, prior to that, I I think I had this this notion that I was 
this like strong independent, you know, this like fallacy really, but this strong independent, uh, you know, athlete and, uh, with a, with a very healthy ego. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, I, I definitely pushed a lot of people aside, people I loved and, or, and who loved me and cared for me and didn't really appreciate the role that they were playing in my life. And, um, when I was lying in the hospital bed, uh, with a broken back and hip and like, I literally couldn't wipe my own ass. Um, in just in like sheer agony and kind of quite afraid about what the future would, even though I had like a lot of gratitude to being alive, I was, you know, I was afraid about what the future would hold. And, uh, you know, just the, the caring touch from, you know, these like, you know, nurses and, uh, you know, support staff, um, to, to family and friends who, who drove like over six hours to come visit me just really reminded me, um, and opened my eyes to the importance of community. And so I, I try to do a much better job at, um, you know, showing gratitude and love for my community and spending time with the people that really matter to me. Well, take us through um, that day uh, that you experienced with Laura. But before that, I, I, I want to ask about how, how you met Laura because it was uh, it it was not as uh, frictionless as as uh, it could have <laughs> been. I, I, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> you you had to you had to pursue a little bit. She was not at all um, yeah. making it easy for you. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, pr- prior to my accident in Rogers Pass, uh, the year before, I- I'd met this uh, this wonderful this wonderful woman. Her name is Laura Kozakowski, and uh, we-, we actually met online. And, uh, you know, she was a she was an anesthesia resident. So she was a, you know, a doctor in training in, in-, in anesthesiology. And she'd just come off a 30-hour shift, and we agreed to meet for a beer. And I remember seeing a photo of her, and she's, like, super beautiful, obviously incredibly smart um, and really, really athletic woman. I was like, oh, my God, this person's kind of perfect. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had actually sent her a message on the dating app, and she actually kind of hated the dating app. <laughs> and so I don't think she ever really checked it, and I didn't hear anything back, didn't hear anything back. But I noticed that we had some friends in common. And so I messaged one of my friends, and I was like, hey, do you mind putting in a good, this, like, <laughs> putting in a good word with this, with Laura? <laughs> Just sort of telling her she should – probably meet up with me <laughs> and luckily they, they were a good a good a good wingman and uh and, and and he did and uh we ended up meeting for a beer at the Kensington pub and she'd just come off a 24 or 30 hour shift and was absolutely shattered and was going to bail on it but decided last minute to actually come and I remember seeing her um, outside the pub and was like oh man she's even more beautiful in person than she is in her photos and we ended up just having this really really deep meaningful conversation and there's just like an instant sort of chemistry and attraction, but we were both just coming out of, um, of you know, of, of longer term relationships. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of, um, I'm not sure if we, either one of us was quite ready, uh, to move on yet. And, uh, but we, you know, we, um, I knew that she liked, uh, you know, mountain activity. She grew up as a competitive climber, but she, she played competitive hockey and, uh, her dad was a, a mountaineer. And so we started going for some light ski tours and some, some rock climbing together and, end up going and doing a few out like easy alpine routes together and um just had these really wonderful uh, connections out in nature together but you know then then you get back to the valley there's a little still a little bit of uh, and, and she was working a lot at the time as well uh, and i was also working as a lawyer um and so it was a little bit challenging actually sort of to, to hold that same connection um in you know in the valleys as we could in the mountains and uh, so we were pretty hot and cold. Um, but then when I had my accident, uh, you know, I think it, it, it kind of just knocked both of us into, you know, like, what are, what are we doing here? Uh, you know, she, uh, she, she dropped everything and came and helped and looked after me and helped me recover. And it really, really just uh, bonded us in this really, really special way and ended up um, 
getting married a year later. And, uh, you know, she became one of my main climbing and backcountry ski partners. And we did a lot. And she could move like effortlessly in the mountains. And it was just a, and just also just a joy to be around. And, um, you know, and we also traveled the world together as well. Uh, we, we were both, once again, like really just curious and adventurous people. And very much so, even though we were both professionals, um, we both very much had a, a work to live uh, kind of mentality. So we would take months off to go and travel and climb and uh, explore the world um, as much as we could together. And so, yeah, just a really, really special, unique uh, couple of years together. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, I, I know that obviously you had an, an accident out in the mountains. I don't know how typically people approach asking you about that, but uh, I do want to, you know, I do want to share with folks what happened. And, and if, do you mind sharing some of that story? I know we don't have tons and tons of time, so I don't mean to bring it up before you start. No, something no, else. no, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, um, no. I mean, it's, it's totally fair. It's it's been quite public about it. Um, in, in January of 2020, uh, Laura and I, uh, or a friend and I, uh, a friend of mine and I, were going to go check out a new Dos area. Um, he's a he's a ski guide um, in the Canadian Rockies and just this wonderful, wonderful skier. And um, we we've been talking for months about actually getting out together, but he you know he, he has a really busy guiding schedule and it's really hard for him to actually find time to go free skiing and ski for fun. And I finally had a, a day off, and um, so we agreed to meet and. Laura um, didn't have any didn't have any uh, work duties that day, and so she asked if she could come along. And um, so we were all really psyched to go and check out this uh, this area in Banff National Park um, at the base of Mount Hector, which is one of the you know one of the the bigger peaks in the area. And uh, it's an area Mount Laura and I had climbed and summited a bunch of times, but we wanted to go check out one of the lower bowls. And um, in that time of year, you know, it was a really really cold day, uh, but it had snowed quite a lot. Um, the avalanche conditions were, um, you know, were considerable, which is, um, you know, quite quite a touchy snowpack. Um, but you know, we the three of us all, you know, we obviously uh, Kevin was a, you know, world-renowned ski guide. Uh, Laura and I had the highest level of recreational avalanche training, and I was on the board of directors of Avalanche Canada, and you know, we were, you know, skied, um, you know, hundreds of days every year. Uh, you know, so I had a pretty good sense of the environment and sort of risk man- management. And um, so we went out and we're just hoping for a fun day of powder skiing in a new, in a new area. And we went and checked out one area and we, we, we know some wind slab forming. And so we didn't, we weren't really happy with that zone. So we moved over to a slightly different aspect and, um, you know, we sort of try to mitigate hazards as much as possible. And we skied these like beautiful shoots and we, uh, we had a good skin track in. So we started lapping areas and sort of progressively moving across this ridge line. And, um, Finally, you know, the wind started to pick up and the temps got cold and, you know, we um, decided to sort of call it a day. And uh, so final run of the day, we identified some hazards. We identified a little creek at the bottom and sort of pointed out a, an area that we were going to regroup in this clump of trees. And Laura skied first and, uh, you know, skied this beautiful powder run down this, uh, this wonderful sort of small bowl, um, you know, somewhat sheltered bowl. And then Kevin skied second, and um, you know I watched Kevin. I moved forward to go watch Kevin ski because Kevin Kevin just rips, and he's just a joy to, to watch ski. And as he as I moved forward to go watch Kevin, um, I must have triggered a small um, convex roll, sort of like a, a little weakness in the snowpack. And uh, next thing I knew, the entire slope uh, below my feet was avalanching. 
And um, so it, it ended up going about uh, 80, 80 meters, so um, almost 300 feet across the, this open face, and it ran the 400 meters of the, the bull, uh, so the 1,600 feet. And I started to get caught in the avalanche, and I quickly um, self-arrested on my ski poles. I was able to, to stop myself right above the, the crown of the snow. And I, I just watched this avalanche rip down the slope. And uh, once uh, once the, the powder cloud settled, I started yelling avalanche, avalanche. Um, but they were both quite far down the slope. And um, so I quickly uh, transitioned over to another aspect so I wouldn't trigger any secondary slide over top of them. And I skied down as quickly as I could. And when I got down there, I saw Kevin. And Kevin said he saw Laura in the trees. Um, I started yelling her name. And we, uh, she doesn't respond. I yell again. She doesn't respond. And we, we quickly realized that uh, um, something, something serious had happened. And so we pull out our, our avalanche uh, beacons and start performing a beacon search. And uh, we, we get drawn into this creek bed uh, that we'd identified as a hazard. And um, the, the, the best reading that we got on our – so when you're backcountry skiing, everybody in a group um, wears these avalanche transceivers that s- submit, send off a little signal. Um, and there's either a send mode, and then if something happens, the other people in the party send it to search mode, and it starts looking for these signals. And the best signal that we got was uh, was uh, was four meters, uh, which means that Laura was buried um, over 12 feet into the snowpack from us, and in this quite a steep cliffside. And so we both pulled out our our avalanche shovels and started digging as, as frantically as we could, but. It was quite a complex dig due to the, the steepness of the slope. So we ended up having to, to dig um, from almost 10 meters back, so almost 40 meters, uh, 40 feet plus back uh, to tunnel in so that we wouldn't, so that the snow wouldn't just keep falling in. You have to sort of tunnel your way into, into, the, um, into the person who's buried. And so it took us um, you know, almost, almost 45 minutes to get to her. Um, and when we, found, when we got to her, her body was, was upslope and uh, Kevin, she was, she was really blue, but Kevin was able to clear her airway and tried to perform, you know, he, he got a pulse. Um, well, he, he told me he got a pulse, um, but he, in fact, in, in retrospect, he, he, he lied to me. Um, and we, we ended up having to keep digging for another 45 minutes. And I, the second we got the, the 12 foot uh, reading, I, uh, I, I um, press send on my, I uh, had a, an in reach with me because um, there's no cell signal where we were. And so, that had initiated a, um, a call to local search and rescue. And uh, um, so after an hour and a half of digging, we finally uh, got Laura out and we tried performing CPR on her and there, we got no response. And, um, you know, we took every bit of clothing that I had in my pack and tried to keep her warm. And I sat with her and held her and caressed her and tried my best to not fully uh, collapse because I, I thought that she was, uh, she was dead at that point. Um, and finally, when the search and rescue crew up, they were they were all friends of ours, and they recognized us, and that just absolutely crushed me when they saw um, who we were. And you could just see the look, even though they were all very professional, you could see the look on their faces that this looked really serious. And um, you know, it was obviously really hard and traumatic on them. And so they they packaged Laura and flew her out, and then uh, they came back and got Kevin and me. And when I was being long lined out, um, I I completely collapsed and. Uh, I uh, just absolutely just started crying and screaming and punching and kicking in the air. And um, Laura got flown to a hospital about a hundred miles away. So 
we uh we had some friends drive us to the hospital and um when we got there they told us that uh Laura um you know was in a really really serious state um she had a very faint pulse but uh they didn't you know they didn't there was they were going to do what they could to try and they were trying to warm her at the time but they didn't know if there's any brain activity and um the following day uh they um they so they had to stop uh, um providing life support to Laura the uh, her 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 bowels had uh had died and sort of the, the medical term will never forget what the doctor said they're like that's incompatible with life so they um they decided that it was uh that there was nothing more they could do for her and so by this point word had gotten out that um uh, to the broader community and, and friends and family that you know this had happened and um so we all basically just gathered around Laura and held her and sat with her and talked to her and you know supported her and slowly just watched as she died I'm sorry yeah um so that was January 11th of 2020 and that's sort of being living with um you know with, with the consequence of that I mean I triggered triggered the avalanche and um you know wasn't able to save Laura and of it and I don't think you ever really can so also just in terms of the fact that you can't ever really make sense of it um you know I I know that you've been asked about that so many times and I hate to have to revisit it with you again but you know what what do you think having gone through something so traumatic yourself and having some having gone through that I I mean and, and that was right before the pandemic I mean that was just gosh blow after blow um what do you think you're learning about life through these experiences or what do you think that, that you can share that, you know what I'm saying? Like what is maybe some mm-hmm. of the overarching lessons no, that sure. you've learned yeah. about this life that we're all living? Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, um, I mean, you know, I, I have, you know, I've, I've been really, really, um, I've been really fortunate through, through a lot of my life. You know, I come from, um, you know, like I have a privileged family background I've had to, I got to experience some incredible highs. I've got to see large parts of the world. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about getting, putting food on my table or feeding my family. I've been really, really fortunate in that way. But at the same time, like life is just, is, life can just be hard and it can be short. And I really, you know, I, I kind of made a promise to Laura that I was still going to just try to have as much gratitude for and try to experience much of the life that she will never get to experience. And, um, you know, really, once again, as I as I did through my my initial accident, really had to support and rely on my community and and friends to to see me through these incredibly hard times. And and I just were reminded of how important it is to um, to hold the people that you love close, and then also just to go and like try to find those like deep, rich life experiences, like the awe moments in life, but, you know, like the material things and the results and all that stuff doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Like it's, they're cool things to have, but what you really, really remember, like the, what I think about her, like, you know, the little smiles I got to have with Laura and um, you know, telling her I love her, having coffee with her in the morning and I really miss those things. So I think just trying to have like a real, real deep appreciation for those moments when you get them. And don't take those things for granted. Sorry. No, those are that. Those those moments are what make up life. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, like life is about love, ultimately. You know, and 
that it is also about hardship, you know, like that's also a part of it. Like, you know, it's not, don't hide from those emotions either. Um, I think just accepting the fact that sometimes life is hard and sometimes things are shit. Um, it's part of my, part of my language there, but it, they just are. And asking for help in those moments and allowing people to, to support you and then supporting your friends as well when they're going through that stuff is really, really important. Do you see people differently now? Just maybe not knowing what people might be going through. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's that classic saying that, you know, you know, be kind, everybody's going, like, you don't know what struggles people are going through. Um, I, I do genuinely believe that. Um, I think that, every, you know, we're all just trying to do our best. Like, everybody's trying to do their best, and we all kind of fumble our way along. Nobody has any of this figured out. Um, and I don't think that there is a, a right or a wrong. Well, there's, there's definitely some wrong ways to do things, but yeah, just try to be kind to people, have a lot of compassion for them, try to understand their viewpoint and where they're coming from. Um, I think if you can do those things, you may not agree with them, but at least you've given them sort of the dignity uh, of, of trying and given them space. And I think that that can sort of, um, you know, open a lot of, well, one, it could open your, your, your eyes and mind to a whole new world of viewing, but also just showing people general kindness comes back to you in spades as well. And not that it needs to come back to you, but it, it, it generally does. And I think you just end up living life in a slightly happier, more content way. You said, uh, I heard you say before that life has always been about finding your edge. Um, what, what, what is your edge now? Um, I, I actually, I don't necessarily know if it's, I don't know if it's about finding your edge. I think it's just, it's, it's about just like deep curiosity. Um, you know, and curiosity means sort of being willing to explore slightly uncomfortable places and spaces. Um, and so I'd say that that's, that's what it is. It's once again, it's just, a deep knowledge, like wanting to have a deep knowledge and curiosity about what's around the next corner, what's somebody thinking. So just replacing yourself in positions to be able to, to explore those curiosities can go a really long way to, to leading a very rich and fulfilled life. Hmm. You know, I know you had really big goals before and you said you still do. What, what would you say one of your biggest goals you haven't yet achieved is now? Oh, uh, I mean, probably having a family. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's one thing I'd like to have. It'd be, it'd be that, like, uh, you know, whatever that means. Um, but I'd say that that's probably, once again, I, I don't think I'm really, I, I try not to be too concerned with, like, actual outcomes of things. But just, you know, you know, at the end of my life, sort of, if I could have people say, you know, he was a kind, compassionate, curious, adventurous person. I think that that would mean a lot to me. Um, so I think sort of that, and I'm thinking a lot more about sort of my, my legacy going forward is I'm no longer, um, you know, the athlete I used to be, but I'm sort of, you know, I just want to keep evolving and changing. You know, like I don't want to be the same person I was when I was 15 or 16 or 20 or 30. Um, I want to keep evolving as a person and experiencing life to its fullest and sort of exp keep, you know, evolving and adventuring with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I tell you what, I, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Um, you know, on each can of beer at Athletic Brewing, it says brew without compromise. And we realized in order to brew without compromise, you need to live without compromise. Um, and so considering all the life that you've lived so far and what you've experienced, what does it mean to you to live without compromise? Well, once again, I just think it's like, you know, it's just, you know, dare to try. I think it's just, just you know, don't be afraid to, to try new things. Um, you know, don't be afraid of failure. Uh, just put it out there. Try it if you're curious about it. Don't be afraid to be a beginner either. Um, like it's actually really fun to learn new skills and develop. And you, you never know what sort of community may come from that. Um, 
And in terms of the, it's interesting actually. In terms of the the non, uh, you know, uh, drinking non-alcoholic beer. I mean, you know, having a cup of tea, um, having a, a brew is to me is all part of sort of the overall mountain experience because that's like where a community forms. It's where you share stories. And um, I sort of uh, I've really really tried to cut back on alcohol. I uh, just due to um, you know, so everything I've gone through, I definitely have de- dealt with some mental health issues and emotional issues. And, um, and I found that, you know, consuming alcohol, one could be a, a potentially dangerous crutch for me. And I also just found it really affected me in, in quite a deep way. And, but I also just really love beer. <laughs> You're quite a predicament there. Yeah, so, non, so non-alcoholic <laughs> beer has been a wonderful way for me to sort of still engage in those pastimes and activities I really enjoy in a way that doesn't um, have a negative impact on me. Uh, in fact, it just kind of enhances my life because when I, I just I, nothing more, nothing like better than finishing an adventure, getting back to the truck or getting home, and you know, uh, opening a cooler or a fridge and, and cracking a beer and handing one, or most importantly, handing one to my partners that I'm with, cracking it with them, and then start storytelling. And that to me is like that's the, that's the peak experience. First of all. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.